Of course, Kobe Bryant has been in the news a lot the last couple of weeks. You basketball fans are probably familiar with an iconic picture that was taken way back on December 17th, 1997. In the picture, you see Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan standing shoulder to shoulder at about half court in the middle of a Bulls-Lakers game. At 19 years old, it's Kobe's second season, while Jordan is back from his first of three retirements from the NBA. In one picture, you can see, uh, sorry, in the picture, you can see Jordan is talking to Kobe. Kobe's listening intently. After the game, reporters asked the guys what had happened. With seven minutes left in the game during a free throw, Kobe walked over and struck up a conversation with MJ. One interviewer said, was he willing to give you any advice or any secrets? And Kobe replied that he did. So the reporters went and asked Michael Jordan, and he said, well, he wanted to know how, when I turn around on my jump shot, how I feel the defense. And then he gave him some pointers that I couldn't understand because I don't play basketball. <laughs> it's a moment that many look back on as a passing of the torch between eras in NBA history. Kobe would, in many ways, pick up where Jordan left off. And Michael Jordan would eventually actually retire for real and uh, there would still be many more games to play. There would be new players to play the games. The sport would continue, of course. In some ways, that speaks to us of the continuing work of God through his church day by day, era after era. If you're a part of Christ's body, if you're a Christian, you're not a spectator in the, span, in the stands tonight. At least you're not supposed to be. You're a player on the court. The ball is live. The clock is ticking. You have a position that you've been put in and a part to play. You're a member of a team, but also given a lot of personal responsibility and personal opportunity to uh, do your thing and to score some spiritual points. As we make our way down the court, we have the chance to learn from those who've come before us. And this is one of the great purposes of the book of Acts. Not that we're just impressed with it, but that we're instructed by it. And we take a look at these great disciples of the past and listen to their example, learning about uh, how to be more successful in our own walks with the Lord. And not that we simply try to mimic their movements any more than Kobe Bryant simply said, well, I'll just mirror what Michael Jordan did and therefore I'll be a great basketball player. That's not what happened. But instead by learning from their lives and from their examples and from these situations where God worked in them. We want to be used, we want to serve the Lord, we want to be successful in the ways that matter uh, to heaven, and you know, God wants those things for us too. And so how can we be encouraged or instructed in our spiritual game, as it were, today? We've got a great example tonight, as we see an ordinary guy living his ordinary life, but being remarkably used by an extraordinary God, and his example of how to follow Jesus and how to honor Jesus is made all the more informative to us as he is contrasted with history's greatest anti-Christian, Saul, the Pharisee, who thought he was following God all along, but it was in fact going the opposite direction. We start in verse one, and it says this, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. A lot was happening in this meanwhile. If you've been with us uh, through these studies, you know about them. But the church had been scattered and driven out of Jerusalem by violent persecution. A great awakening had come to Samaria. The gospel is being brought to the African continent by way of the Ethiopian eunuch. 
the Lord's sheep were headed out to the wider world, out of Jerusalem. But at the same time, the devil raised up a wolf to try to destroy them, to chase them down. Saul was an absolutely ferocious enemy of the church. You know, the way Luke writes it here, he didn't breathe oxygen to survive. He breathed murder to survive and threats and hatred. One of the most enduring sound effects of all time is Darth Vader's hooper, right? <laughs> you hear that, and you, it instantly conjures up images in your mind, and, and just the sound, even without him being on the screen, uh, gives you those uh, feelings of dread and villainy and danger. And that's Saul. He breathes murder. Verse one continues, Saul went to the high priest, and he requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. At this point, we'll note that the Christian group was called the way. They weren't known as Christians yet. They weren't known as the church yet. Uh, when people talked about them, they were called the way. And while this reminds us that there is just one exclusive avenue by which mankind can be saved, the way, Jesus Christ, it also highlights in vivid imagery, the continuous forward-looking activity of the Christian life. That word, a lot's trapped in that word, the way, right? Uh, it's a way, it's a walk. Remember, Jesus tells us to follow him. We're on the move, we're headed to a definite destination, and we're to be actively engaged as we move along. If you imagine yourself saying, I'm on the way, uh, that means that you're moving. That means you're progressing. That means you're headed to, in a definite de direction to a definite destination. And uh, it's just an instructive word all around. Now, there's a lot tucked into this verse and a half. First of all, I think it's important that we note that the disciples were not anti-Jewish, not at all. In fact, they were still had connection to synagogues. And they still would attend the synagogues. We've seen in all these chapters before that the Christians were still going to the temple every single day. Uh, they weren't enemies of the Jews. In fact, they were doing what they could to preach the gospel to these people and to save even uh, the members of the Sanhedrin as they kept preaching the gospel to them. And uh, it's a horrible mistake when the church allows any doctrine or attitude of anti-Semitism to creep in, in any regard. And that's happened in different places in church history and different traditions or whatever. But uh, any sort of attitude of uh, anti-Jewish thought or anti-Semitic thought, uh, it's a horrible mistake. It's a grievous sin. Uh, the church here in the book of Acts was absolutely not anti-Jew. They were still deeply connected uh, with the Jewish community. We also see in this verse and a half, uh, Saul as a great contrasting example to what following God is really all about. Because remember, uh, Saul thought he was following God. And in some sense, uh, according to his metric, he was following God more zealously and more earnestly and more effectively than anybody on the planet, right? In, in some sense, you would probably have to take a poll of the whole world at that time and say, who is the most religious person in the whole world? And most of those ballots, the caucus would say, Saul. And it wouldn't take all these days and days and days to find the answer, right? They would say, yeah, it's this guy. You know, he thought he is following the Lord, but as we see what he's doing and how he does it, man, he's such a great anti-example to us, such a great contrast to what it means to be a Christian who actually follows the God of the Bible. Uh, he's on a mission, right? 
He's been commissioned, right? But his mission is to make captives. Of course, Christ sends us out to set captives free by the power of the gospel. Saul's goal was to destroy his enemies wherever he found them. Our goal is to reconcile them to God and to make them family with us in, uh, in Christ. He went to the high priest and received epistles, that's the word used, that served as death warrants uh, for the you know, recipients. Later, Saul himself would be transformed, of course, into the great epistle writer, sending letters, sending epistles, not to condemn people, but to help them grow and be encouraged and receive God's grace, to learn about how much God loves them, how God wants to save them, how God wants to show them the way of life that leads to heaven. Pretty interesting contrast. Now, why Damascus? Still more here in this verse and a half. Why Damascus? It's over 100 miles from Jerusalem. It would have taken quite some time to go. It's out of the country. Uh, and, and obviously, we you know, have read previously that the church had been scattered in all sorts of directions. We know a lot's going on. So why is Saul focused on Damascus? We can only make some guesses as to why providence led him there. Uh, but here are a few. For one thing, Damascus was an important city with a lot of comings and goings of lots of different people from different parts of the empire. And it's estimated that there were 30 or 40 Jewish synagogues in that city alone. And so perhaps Saul was looking at the map and he said, you know, if I was going out as one of these, you know, terrible Christian people, what city would I target to destroy the Jewish, you know, the Jewish religion? Well, I would go to Damascus. It's out of Jerusalem, and I think it's out of the reach of the Sanhedrin, and so I'll go there and poison the Jewish religion. I, maybe he's thinking strategically, and so it makes sense that he says, okay, well, if there's going to be an attack on Judaism, maybe the attack will come to Damascus. And so he goes there. It helps that there were political reasons why the Sanhedrin would be allowed to continue their persecution of Christians in Damascus. Commentators talk about this ruler and that ruler and why they would have said, yeah, that's fine. You can extradite Christians from Damascus down back into Judea and into Jerusalem. They'd be allowed to do that. And in perhaps other locations, they wouldn't have been able to do that. Now, I also think that it's interesting that with Saul's attention focused on a city so far north, the much closer region of Samaria, where a fledgling group of disciples were just getting their start, they'd be protected from their wrath, right? So as Luke's you know, unwrapping this story for us, if we were reading it straight through like his first recipient, Theophilus, was, you'd say, well, where's all the action happening right now? The church got scattered out of Jerusalem. Well, where is something happening? And as the narrative goes, well, it's happening in the region of Samaria where this great awakening is happening and all kinds of people are becoming believers and, and the, you know, this next church here is being just barely established. And now you have the devil sending out his wolf to go and destroy the church, um, vulnerable as it was. And it seems in some sense that Providence says, hey, look over there while this is happening. And so he leapfrogged over Samaria to get to Damascus, uh, protecting that, that young work that was happening through Philip. But also, finally, there's a particular Christian in Damascus that God wanted to use like he had wanted to use Philip to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. And I don't ever want us to forget this as we study the book of Acts, that God is also looking at your life and my life and says, I have 
uh, particular assignments and tasks and opportunities that I want to use those individuals for. And he works his providence in such a way so that we can be involved in that work. And so in this case, there was a particular individual we're going to be introduced to who the Lord had said, I would like this guy to be involved in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so he is accomplishing his purposes uh, for lots of different reasons, it seems. Verse three says, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. We'll find out that the believers in Damascus knew Saul was on his way. They knew what he was going to do. They knew what he was about. No doubt they had been gathering for prayer meetings, asking God to intervene. And yet day after day, mile after mile, the Lord let this man get closer and closer and closer and closer as he's nearing Damascus. Finally, there's this encounter on the road. Now, on a practical level, I think this is necessary because had Jesus knocked Saul down in the first mile of his trip, what would he have done? He wouldn't have taken a 130-mile trip up to Damascus. He would have just turned around and gone back to Jerusalem, convalesced with uh, the rest of you know, the Sanhedrin there. And, but in his grace, we also note that God allows his enemies to get in near. Uh, in fact, more than that, God draws his enemies in. The Bible says that when Jesus is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. And we see other poignant examples of, of God knowingly, willfully, of course, allowing his enemies in close so that he can show love and grace to them. Think about Judas. He called Judas friend. He reached out to him again and again, even to the very end. Jesus knew Judas was uh, not a true believer. G Jesus knew what Judas was all about. Jesus knew Judas was stealing from the treasury. He knew all of these things. He knew he was the betrayer. Uh, and he's just, he said, yeah, you're, you're still, come on in. Let's, have, let's sup together. You're my friend. And I uh, kept drawing towards him. Think about Nebuchadnezzar, as if you were here with us uh, for our studies through the book of Daniel, the kind of grace and, uh, that God showed Nebuchadnezzar, that terrible king, that terrible man, but kept drawing him closer and closer until ultimately he too surrendered his life and uh, became a believer in the God of Israel. Now, Saul's approach to Damascus also reminds us that God is more concerned with us relying on him and trusting in his power than us feeling safe and secure. God's highest uh, goal for his people in Damascus was not that they felt safe or that they felt secure, obviously, because if that was the case, he would have just evaporated Saul and all of their enemies, but he didn't do that. He says, yeah, I'm gonna let this guy get to the very doorstep. I'm gonna get, let those chariots of Egypt get right there because what God prioritizes in our lives is that we rely on him and that we trust in him. And that means that there's gonna be situations where we're going to have to rely on him and trust in him. Not usually pleasant for us, but that is something that is important to the Lord. Now, from our vantage point, reading thousands of years later, we know that the Christians in Damascus, they were bracing for impact, but we know that they were safe, right? We know the end of the story. We're excited about what's gonna happen for Saul, but try to put yourself in their place. They know that Darth Vader's coming and that it's not the fun Disney-fied Darth Vader. It's, he's just gonna wipe everybody out. He's gonna drag people kicking and, and, and brutalized back to Jerusalem so that they can be murdered simply because they 
acknowledge that Jesus Christ was alive and rose from the dead and that he was the, is the Messiah, right? And so uh, we understand what was happening, but all the while we also know that Saul was not just acting without any sort of restriction, right? Saul was being monitored by God. He was being followed by God. In fact, he was not outside of the Lord's jurisdiction. And so there's a great, from the top down, as, as Christians who can look back on this story, try to put ourselves in that place and try to look at the danger and the pressure that people must have felt and to remember that, yeah, the Lord wants us to rely on him and to trust in him and to remember that God is in charge. And even when things are dangerous, we know that there's nothing outside of his jurisdiction. Verse four says, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those words are probably read in your Bible. The last time we saw Jesus speaking was back in chapter one, where he addressed his own people at the ascension. And now he's back, not to speak to an apostle, but to speak to an assassin, to have a talk with the man who hates Christ more than anyone else on the planet. Pretty neat. I don't know if you screen your phone calls, but uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ here is taking the time to personally speak with the one man who hates him more than anyone else in the whole earth. What a gracious God. Now, the Lord uses an interesting play on words here. At least I think it's interesting. The term for persecuting, though most often translated that way, is sometimes elsewhere translated as pursue. It can mean running after or following in haste. Saul thought he was following after God, following God's word. In reality, he's traveling in the opposite direction as far as heaven is concerned. And now the hunter has become the hunted, and it's just sort of interesting to me. Uh, Jesus knocks him down. He says, hey, wh what are you chasing me for? What are you pursuing me for? Are you following me? Am I being followed? And so uh, it's an interesting question. Saul answers, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. In Avengers Endgame, the Incredible Hulk goes to a New York rooftop to retrieve an infinity stone, and there he encounters someone known as the Sorcerer Supreme. I'm sorry if you don't know what any of this is about. Uh, most of you probably do. He encounters another superhero figure known as the Sorcerer Supreme, who with one easy palm to the chest knocks the strongest Avenger out cold, surprising him and the whole audience watching. And then they have a very important conversation having to do with whatever's going on in the plot. But here the Lord Jesus reveals once again his power, uh, and not only that, his personal attachment to his people. Uh, of, of course, Saul could do nothing to harm the God-man, right? It, I mean, you, you can't persecute the God-man uh, uh, in that sense. He couldn't reach up to heaven and strike Jesus Christ. But Jesus sees any attack on his disciples as an attack on himself. And, you know, that tells us a lot. It, it reminds us that you and I are not nameless pawns on the chessboard of heaven, right? We are not drones in God's army. We are God's children. We are the bride we are dearly loved. And when you suffer, the Lord knows and he cares and he feels it as if he is suffering himself. And uh, we see that someone as powerful as Saul 
uh, who was so wicked and had such free reign to do, it seemed, whatever he wanted just in a moment. Uh, without breaking a sweat, of course, the Lord just knocks him down. Uh, the strongest uh, brutalizer of the church is just uh, down and out, and there's nothing he's going to be able to do. Verse 6 says, but get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You know, Jesus' treatment of Saul is somewhat harsh in comparison to the way that he sometimes interacted with other people. I mean, think of how he interacted with the woman caught in adultery or even some of the other folks, you know, the rich young ruler. Uh, we see a lot more tenderness in some of those interactions. In some sense, there's some harshness here. Uh, not unwarranted, but it's there. You know, he physically knocked Saul down. He's leveled a serious accusation against him. And here the Lord lets Saul know, I'm the captain now. Uh, you're doing this and uh, you're gonna obey me and this is what you're gonna have to do. And of course, this is all much, much less than Saul deserves, right? I mean, Saul deserves instant judgment for what he has done against the Lord and against his people. But the Lord shows patience and grace towards this wicked man and thank God that that's true. Uh, because while you and I may not be guilty of the same actions that Saul was, of course, our sin is just as evil. Uh, we don't have cute sin, it's sin. Uh, our sin is just as black, just as evil, just as wicked, just as uh, objectionable to a holy God as Saul's was. Uh, our sin is just as disqualifying, just as deserving of judgment and death. But a God of grace has intervened so that we can be saved from ourselves and for eternity. What God was willing to do for Saul, he has done for you and I, if you're a Christian here tonight. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, maybe you don't think, you think, why well, I haven't murdered anybody. Okay, that's fine. But as far as the standard of heaven is concerned, the standard of heaven is perfection. And if you are not perfect every single moment of every single day of your whole life, uh, then you are just as guilty and deserving of instant uh, uh, judgment and, and just as deserving of hell as Saul of Tarsus was, who was persecuting Jesus. But God, our God of grace, has intervened that we might be saved. Verse seven says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Uh, you know, God didn't have anything to say to those guys that, at the moment. And I, I think that's, I just think that's kind of interesting. He just did it. And that may seem strange, but it's true. And you know, if you've ever tried to share the gospel with a group of people, um, you've probably experienced a phenomenon where, you know, in a group of two or three or more people, maybe one person seems to actually be hearing you, right? And the other people just aren't listening or they just aren't hearing or they're cracking wise and, and it's just not connecting. And uh, you know, it's that one person then that the Lord wants to have a divine appointment with. Focus on them. Uh, if you're preaching the gospel and that happens, don't worry about it. Be sensitive to the people who are listening, who are hearing what you have to say. Focus on them, work with them, and trust that the Lord uh, has a different appointment for the other people that might not be hearing what's being said. Verse eight, then Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, did not eat or drink. In a literal flash, the church's biggest, most dangerous enemy was neutralized, just in a moment. 
Uh, He who had dragged off women and men to suffer and die had now to be led by the hand like a little child, unable to fend for himself, didn't know where he was going, didn't know what to do, completely at the mercy of others. It's amazing what our Lord can do in a moment of time. The entire arrangement had changed in a literal flash of light. A few moments ago, this seemingly unstoppable killer was coming to hunt down all the Christians in Damascus. He had all the power of the world behind him. Who was gonna stop them? Nobody. Who was gonna stand in his way? Nobody. What could the people do? Nothing. And then a couple of seconds later, yeah, that's not anything anymore. That's just gone. That, that threat has evaporated. That man has evaporated. His life's forever changed. The church is forever changed. History is gonna be forever changed. And God did that in a moment. And so we want to always uh, just celebrate and trust our God and that he can do big things as fast as he wants to. Things that seem impossible, things that seem incredible, God can accomplish in a moment. We see Saul was profoundly impacted by these events. He's not just blind. I mean, he's completely messed up. He's unable to eat or drink. His mind is absolutely reeling. His sin has been uh, shown to him for all of its evil. Surely thousands of passages of scripture that he had memorized were coming to mind just in unending succession as he started to piece together that he has been wrong about everything he's done and thought for his entire life. Everything he knows is wrong. Everything he's been doing is wrong. And not just wrong, really wrong. All the way wrong. You have been attacking the Messiah that you think you are waiting for. And so uh, no wonder he couldn't eat or drink. And now we get to our forerunner, a great example for us, the disciple Ananias. Verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. We're told later in Acts that Ananias was known to the Jews in Damascus synagogues. He was a good man, a man of integrity. Being known like that, it's altogether possible that his name was already on the hit list in Saul's pocket. The Lord calls him by name just as he called Saul by name. And I just want to keep reminding us that God knows us. He knows you. I mean, he formed you in your mother's womb. He's numbered every hair of your head, but he knows you. He actually knows you personally. Uh, Joe Biden created a memorable gaffe a while back on the campaign trail. He was asked who his potential VP candidates would be. He says, oh yeah, I've got four of them. But he couldn't remember a single one of their names. (laughs) And hey, they're working around the clock, you know, a lot going on. But it it makes for a pretty good video. Uh, And because then he tries, he really struggles. It's clear he has no idea what their names are. He tries to describe who they are. He's like, that that one lady who is supposed to be governor in Georgia. And it's just, it's just cringeworthy. If you like, if you like cringe humor, go look that up because it's a rough one. Uh, It's a struggle for him to even, you know, list out the four people, but not so with the Lord. He actually knows you. He knows your name. He actually loves you. You're his. You belong to him. He loves you. Uh, Just keep remembering that. Now, Ananias' name means Jehovah is gracious, and he's going to get the chance to live that out. We are called Christians, and every day we have the opportunity to live that name out, to live out the life of Christ and the truth of Christ to the world around us. 
As with Ananias, the task is not for the faint of heart. Verse 11, get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. Uh, I think this is great. And here's why. Lots of reasons. But first of all, God not only knows your name, he knows your address, he knows where you're from, he knows what you're doing. Uh, The Bible says he is attentive to us, that he is keeping watch as we come and go now and forever. Uh, And so uh, is a good motivator, but also a great comfort. God knows your address. He knows where you're from. He knows where you're going. He knows what you're doing. He loves you. But I can't help but think of the Lord delivering this message with a twinkle in his eye. It's almost playful. And here's why. Jesus knows that Ananias knows exactly who Saul is, right? I mean, most of us are familiar with this passage on some level or another, and you're gonna see in the next you know, set of words here. Ananias knows exactly who Saul is. It, it is undoubted that the, the Christians have probably been praying around the clock for God to intervene about this guy, right? And yet, what does Jesus say? He's like, okay, there's a house a few streets over, and there's a guy there. His name is Saul. And you'll know him because he's from Tarsus. If you are wondering who he is, just say, well, are you the Saul from Tarsus? How about, are you the Saul that's murdered a bunch of people like me? You know, uh, he doesn't fill in Ananias yet about the Damascus Road encounter. He just says, you know, Saul's praying. And if I'm Ananias, I'm saying, yeah, to who? Who is he praying to? I feel like there's a lot of information that I don't have right now. Uh, the Lord continues in verse 12. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. What? I don't know if the Lord has ever told you, hey, there's going to be someone at work today, uh, you know, uh, your boss, and you're going to go in and and he's received a vision from me that you're going to perform a miracle for him. So, you know, so head on into work today. I mean, try to put yourself in Ananias' place. We have no indication that Ananias was a miracle worker, that this was his thing. He's just a guy. Just a guy fleeing for his life to Damascus, trying to serve the Lord and honor the Lord. And now the guy that he has been running from has made it to town. And the Lord says, hey, why don't you go over there and work a miracle for this guy? I think this is pretty amazing. But more than that, what does he say? He says, in a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias. Have you ever been name-checked like this? Or here's a different question. Have you ever been volunteered to do something you absolutely did not sign up for? You know, have you ever heard of the phrase, I was voluntold to do this? You know, it doesn't always feel good to be voluntold to do something. You know when it really doesn't feel good to be voluntold to do something? When a murderer is the person you're supposed to do it for. The person who maybe has your name written on his list of next person to kill, Ananias. And the Lord says, no, no, no. He's seen a vision of a man named Ananias. And that's you. And you need to go over there and do this for him. It's interesting, in God's program, There are times where the Lord gives an open invitation for certain tasks. I sort of like, hey, who's gonna go? We think of Esther. What did Mordecai say to Esther? He said, hey, you should deliver Israel. If you don't, someone else will be raised up to do it. Or we think of the the Jewish exiles returning to the land. It was an open invitation. Hey, who wants to go? Anybody who wants to go, let's go. And, you know, then people volunteered on their own. 
But then there are other times like this where the Lord comes and says, hey, it's gonna be you, not somebody else, not your neighbor, not your friend, not your pastor, not whoever, it's you. I'm telling you to do this specific thing. Saul was waiting for this particular guy to come and perform a miracle for him and explain to him the gospel. If a guy named Kevin showed up, that's not the guy. I'm waiting for Ananias. Jesus, who blinded me and sent me here, told me I'm to wait for Ananias. And the application for us is that while we're all sent into the world generally to do God's work, there are certain imperative individual things that God has prepared for each of us to do. And it is our job as individuals to discover what those things are and to do them. Not assume someone else is going to do them, but that I do them. And when he calls us, we want to be ready to answer and obey. Now, still, Ananias had some questions. I think that's okay. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now, some commentators feel that Ananias was being reluctant to obey. I don't think we need to go that far. Why think the worst? More importantly, I think he becomes a great example once again for us here of how faithful servants of God are not afraid to be frank with God in their prayer lives. They just aren't. God doesn't want you to fake it in your prayer life. He doesn't want you to pretend or posture in your prayer life. Uh, faithful servants are frank with God as they speak with him. Um, God knows what's going on in our hearts and he invites us to honestly communicate with him. He says, hey, cast your cares upon me. He wants us to communicate openly with him. I mean, we're looking at the Psalms on Sunday mornings and we read the Psalms, we see those are some people that are communicating frankly with the Lord. Psalms of lamentation. Psalms of confession, even the Psalms of like, hey, Lord, where are you? The Lord doesn't then come down and say, hey, what did you write that mean Psalm about me for? <laughs> That's really mean. Whenever Taylor Swift comes out with a new song, right? There's like a line of people who are like, hey, that's not how it was. The Lord doesn't do that. He wants us to be frank. These people in the Bible who we celebrate for their prayer lives and for their communication with the Lord, they're frank with the Lord about their concerns and their confusions and their worries. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Saul is going to become the most prominent instrument in the rest of the book. But as an instrument, his life's melody isn't gonna play like a delicate harp. It's gonna be beaten loudly like a drum, uh, beaten over and over again. Ananias had a good work to do in this man's life, but he had a hard message to deliver to him. And sometimes the Lord gives us a hard message to deliver to people. Messages like, you need to turn from your sin. You have ruined your life by rejecting God. You need to turn from your sin. And that can be a hard message for us to deliver, but we need to deliver it all the same, to do so in love the way Ananias will here in the next set of verses. Verse 17, so Ananias left and entered the house. And then he placed his hands on him and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias shows real courage here. He enters the home of someone who was undoubtedly a hater of Christians, just had Saul had been. This is not a random house. This is the... Uh, uh, HQ that Saul was going to be working out of in his murderous plan to get rid of the Christians. 
And so there in the villain's lair, Ananias walks in surrounded by members of the Sanhedrin's SS and he identifies himself as a Christian. Hi, I'm Ananias, the Christian, and I would love to see Saul. He's waiting for me. This is real courage, raw, brave, uh, just boldness that Ananias is, is showing for us here. And then he proceeds to show unconditional love to the man who came to town to kill him, he calls him brother. He doesn't recoil from Saul. He puts his hands on the weak and vulnerable Pharisee. You know, if this were the book of Judges, this story would have had a much different ending, right? If this was the book of Judges, Saul's getting like a spear in the face right now. Uh, not in the book of Acts. This is Acts. This is the resurrection power of God working through ordinary people to seek and save those who are lost, to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. Ananias trusted his Lord, and because of that, he will be the one to bring the most effective Christian of all time into the kingdom of God. What an incredible opportunity. Verse 18, at once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Let's hold there. When Saul tells this story later in the book, he fills us in on a few details that Luke skips in this chapter. Jesus said to him, I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. That's the message Saul was gonna be sent out as Paul the apostle. And you know what? He lived that message, right? Jesus said, I'm going to send you out to save people, to give them sight those people who were blind. And Saul was able to do that because he actually lived it. It wasn't just a theoretical message. Uh, the, the gospel he would preach uh, wasn't just hypothetical. It wasn't just statistical. It was real. He went and did what had been done for him. He had been blind. He needed rescue. And God sent a messenger to come and open him, his eyes and help him get his share uh, that Jesus talks about uh, there, a share among those who are sanctified. And we think of, uh, in some sense here, the flow of the gospel. Someone had passed that torch to Ananias, and Ananias has now passed it to the man we know as Paul. Paul would, of course, pass it to Timothy and then Titus, and then countless more across the globe and through the decades, coming all the way down to you and me. Like Ananias, we're ordinary Christians living ordinary lives, but also like Ananias, we've been commissioned and invited into the work of God. The play clock is running, and since we want to be effective and useful in our Lord's hands, we can learn from these examples. What do we see here in the life and the example of Ananias? We see prayer, we see obedience, we see faith, we see uh, truth. We see a man who is willing to be led by the Spirit and willing to sacrifice for God's glory if need be. We see compassion, we see mercy and forgiveness toward the most undeserving enemy of God, and we see the world changed as a result. And so we are to go and do likewise as we continue this wonderful work following along as members of the way. Amen.